You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Cyber CEOs Decoded, where we speak with CEOs from established security giants to up and coming disruptors, getting the inside track on what makes a security company tick. I'm your host, Mark Fanzadlov, the CEO of Devo, and today my guest is Rashmi Chatterjee, a well known leader in the cyber community and the CEO of Istari. And Istari, we'll get into it, um, is offering a really differentiated platform for cybersecurity companies. Rashmi, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Mark. Where are you? Uh, where are you today? What part of the world do I find you in? At home in London, Friday afternoon. Good time. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate you. Uh, you're doing that. Hopefully, this is your last meeting of the day. I want to just t- start a bit with a story. Uh, maybe not a household name. So maybe before we get into your background, um, which is a fascinating background spanning, you know, navies and large companies and the entrepreneurial community and cybersecurity in spades. Before we get into all that, you're the CEO of Astari. Give us just a, what is Astari? Give us a scope and scale of what you're trying to do in Astari before we take a step back and get to know how you got there. Yeah, so the mission of Astari is very simple. It's to work with about 200, 250 clients around the world and ensure their cyber resilience. Simple framework, uh, but we do it in a different way. We do it with a trusted partner approach. Uh, Very strongly believe that cyber resilience is not something that gets off and on with one technology. It's a systematic approach to strengthening your foundation of digital business. And what we do is we also have an investment portfolio. So we have a portfolio of companies where in all of which we are fairly significant investors. So the goal is to work with individual clients, understand the cybersecurity requirements for their unique um, risk appetite, risk landscape, and then to address that through our portfolio of companies and through our partnerships. So you know, 200 clients or 250 clients and really control and support them with their cybersecurity programs. Super. And we're going to return to this, but I think for the listeners, it's kind of clear that it's it's an investment platform, but the first thing you started with is a client orientation, 200 clients that you're actually interacting with, with a some sort of go-to-market or consultative team. Um, and not just a bunch of spreadsheet people making investments. So that's that's a very, like I said, a differentiated approach in the market that I want to get back to. Yeah, so it's a supercharger. There's an investment portfolio. And then on top of that, I had a supercharger of, uh, you know, a team of very, very senior and very experienced cybersecurity professionals who work with clients. Now, in that process, what they do is they take away the fragmentation that clients struggle with. Uh, they take away keeping up with multiple technologies. So they just take over and support the client with the, with the requirement. And then, of course, the fact that it's a portfolio that you're deeply invested in allows you to make sure that the delivery is successful as well. All right. So, Rashmi, I'm going to take a step back like I do with all guests and just say, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Where am I from? I'm a Singapore citizen. I lived a lot of my life in Singapore, but I grew up in India. So India is still where I spent the first 30 years of my life. Wow. What part? And it was all over. Born in Agra. My father was in the Air Force. So I changed, I think, nine schools uh, you know, before I went into university. 
all over uh, for Kashmir, Allahabad, Gauhati, but mostly in Delhi, and then college was in West Bengal. I love India. I love the food. I know. <laughs> uh, but a friend of mine, a friend of mine, did tell me. I will get your comment that the best Indian food can be found in London. Do you stand by this statement, or it's true? It's very innovative. The Indian food here is very good. Amazing. Growing up, what, what was the first time you you made a made a buck? You made a, uh, a, a some money, a paid job. So I mean, I, of course, as, as you know, I grew up in India. I'm an Indian girl, so no, the first money I made was when I joined my first job. There were no summer summer jobs and things now, so I made money when I joined my first job, and that was with the Indian Navy. That's funny. So that that was that's not yeah that doesn't happen there in that way. You don't yeah. Maybe now it's been a while, but no, not that. That's funny. Uh, maybe shifting into your career, you were one of the first women to attend uh, the India's top technical institute, and also as I seem to remember from when we uh, we were working together one of the first female officers or the first female officer in the Indian Navy. So I'd love for you to just chart out that chapter of your career and what it was like to, to be such an outlier in both those decisions. Yeah, I continue to be an outlier. So I think that <laughs> the first thing that you can see, you know, which is very common to both um, the institute I went to was uh, the Indian Institute of Technology in Kharagpur. So in both the IIT and the Navy, there is no gender equality. In IIT, I was not the first woman, but the percentage of women was very low, maybe 3%, something like 2-3%. I was the first woman to join my department, which was Naval Architecture. And in the Indian Navy, I was the first woman to join as an engineer, as an officer and as an engineer. So not a very normal uh, kind of, 20, you know, 18 to 25, 30-year-old experience. Um, it teaches you a lot, uh, makes you have great friends. In IIT, we were a very small set of girls. We have been friends for 43 years now. In fact, they are all here very soon in a, a week to celebrate something with me. So we're very close. You also make great friendships, both in IIT and in the Navy. You know, you, you learn to sort of identify people you can trust, work with, have fun with, and that stays for a long time. Yeah, yeah, no, amazing. But the IIT, just give us a sense here because everybody who listens to this has colleagues that grew up in India. You can't in a, in the U.S. and in the U.K. escape uh, the Indian uh, entrepreneurs in the IT space. And some have gone to the IIT, and I've understood from some of them that the acceptance rates are crazy, right? It's like you know, uh, is it t- 10,000 people apply and, and, t- and, and 100 get in? I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy elite. Uh, let, let's, be, let's be open about it. It's, I think the acceptance rate is something like 0.1%. But that also has something to do with the denominator, right? India is a well-populated com- country. A lot of people apply. When I went to IIT, there were only five IITs. And I don't know how many people they took every year. But, you know, clearly it was maybe a thousand or something. It's very difficult to get into IIT. And people like getting into IIT because it's sort of your validity check, you know. From there on, life is much easier. Jobs are easier. Opportunities are easier. And um, I think it's harder now. When I applied, I knew that it was going to be very difficult to get in. 
But I don't think it had, we hadn't had all the successes. We had not seen all the successes that you see today, right? You have uh, Sundar Pichai and a large number of stalwarts around the world who've come from IIT. So I think the reputation has grown, but it was always very difficult to get. So you must have had a, a penchant for engineering and maths and all that in, in, in high school, in your, in your secondary education. I love math and I like logic and engineering is quite logical. I always joke to people, I have a liberal arts degree and an MBA. So, so you know, whenever I talk to engineers, I, I say, speak, speak slowly. <laughs> um, but I think after, after 20 years in cybersecurity, I can fake it. Although my head of engineering will, will, will not uh, agree with that statement uh, <laughs> if he were on the program here. And in the Navy, uh, give us a sense. You, were, you studied naval architecture and design. And then you were in the Navy. Were you, were you ever, I mean, did you ever end up doing tours on, the, on boats and submarines? Or were you more? No, I joined the warship design office. Uh, we were a group of people who were responsible for warship design. This was a very exciting time in the Indian Navy because the Indian Navy had decided that they wanted to develop indigenous capability. They want, you know, otherwise they were buying most ships and submarines from Germany or Russia, et cetera. And they decided the entire process from design to manufacturing, production, everything should become Indian. It was sort of what we call critical infrastructure today, right? They wanted it yep. to become self-maintained. Yeah, yeah. So it was a super time to be there. We, uh, the first job I was given was to participate in a project where we were asking for a large amount of funding to move the capability in-house. Um, and what the, you know, it was designing of warships, strength, um, stability, all the things you do in engineering. Of course, there was a lot of time spent in the ships, uh, all different types, frigates, corvettes, submarines. And we got the approval for the project. We set up the first CATCAM center. I actually ran that CATCAM center. I got a, rec- a commendation from the president of India for that, uh, very exciting times. So you set up, you decided the technology, you trained the people, you found the real estate, and then you connected the design to the production facilities, the shipyards. So it was uh, huge, huge and exciting. And I mean, we have so much left to go on, obviously, inclusion and diversity, and, and you and I, you know, you're involved with that more actively, but when I was working with you at IBM, I know it's a passion of yours. But on the other hand, we've come quite a long way. I mean, back then, should I picture you having to constantly defend that a woman could do this, a woman could have good ideas? Like, what was the culture for a woman entering into the Indian Navy at that time? Or was it, was it not so bad as that? Oh, I think it was total cluelessness. Why is she here? And what is happening here? Like, why? She has a husband, he works and earns well. And so what, what is happening here? It was, I think, clueless. But I had a yeah. marvelous, uh, <laughs> I had a fabulous uh, boss, uh, Admiral Raman. And I don't think Admiral Mohan Raman saw who was female or male. He just saw a set of people who had to get a job done and they better do it well. So he was just great <laughs> to keep everyone sort of focused on what needs to get done. But yeah, they were quite puzzled. I always think that there should be 
because you and I have talked about this, there's some movie with like Matt Damon and a whole bunch of famous people, but probably not Matt Damon, but Hollywood actors, right? And 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 about you just accomplishing great things against all odds, against all odds. Oh, I would so much like to be Matt Damon instead. That sounds like <laughs> a bad option. <laughs> well, I think it's amazing, but I think, you know, for people listening, for women starting in cybersecurity, you didn't start in cybersecurity, but hopefully we've come quite a way from those days. And as I said, have a long way to go. But so you end up at IBM for an amazing career at IBM of of 20 years plus. And do you just like sit at the Indian Navy in that office that you had set up and just send your resume to IBM? How does that work? How does one go from the Indian Navy to IBM? Yeah, so I was in the Navy for almost 10 years. And that was the time that the merit of the bureaucracy started to get to me. You know, it, it's a great organization, but if you want to work harder, move faster, it, it, isn't, it didn't encourage that the gene. Uh, so I kind of knew that it was time for me to do something else. Um, IBM was a very good option. I was very well connected in the industry because in our process of setting up the CAT CAM Center, there was Jet, Silicon Graphics, IBM, a uh, large number of organizations, HCL, uh, HP at that time. We, we spent, uh, I knew everyone quite well. And uh, of course, um, there were a lot of choices. But I always loved IBM because I, I felt as a client, IBM really focused on the client value. You know, this is why I've always been a big fan of the IBM client, client partners, the MDs, because they focus it, they make it all about the clients. So um, that was not a very difficult decision. The moment they approached me, I took, uh, took up the offer. And next thing I know is I'm responsible for public sector sales having never heard the word sales in my life. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. And you joined in uh, in India or in Singapore at this point? No, I joined in India and then moved a year later to Hong Kong. Got it. And so what was that uh, transition like? Was that easy? Was that... So, you know, there's two things about the transition which are very relevant now when I look back. So first of all, I joined IBM in India and then my husband got an offer to move to uh, Hong Kong. He was with Bank of America. And um, my first reaction was uh, two little kids, maybe it's time to, to leave and spend some time with them. That I had a lot of support in India from my parents. Um, so I went to IBM and I said, I have to, you know, husband's moving. I think I am going to resign. And the flexibility that they showed, they said, why do you have to resign? Go on leave of absence. Come back, talk to us after three months, see how you're feeling then. Work part-time. It was such a different, it was such an accommodating approach. So I moved to Hong Kong. I took three months leave, came back, worked, you know, something like five hours a day for four days a week while the kids settled down in school. And then one year back, I was back full time. So when, when we talk about keeping women in the workforce, I just really strongly believe, listen to what is it that they're trying to solve for, because there are so many ways to, there's always periods of time that you need to pass. You, you have to pass. And if somebody supports you at that time, you know, suddenly you'll have a very devoted employee for a long time. I was at IBM for 23 years after that. So um, I think that was one. And the second thing that was very exciting is when I joined IBM in Hong Kong, 
we were setting up the software business. Uh, we had little pieces, you know, we used to have DB2, MQ, and then there was a big time that we acquired Lotus and then we acquired Tivoli. So IBM's complexion was changing from being a hardware company to a software company. And again, clean sheet of paper to sit down and design how we're going to build this business, what really matters, you know, some amount of funding, but how do you use that funding to make software? IBM was not known as a software company. Um, so we kind of focused on four things I still remember so well. One was government relationships because government was a big buyer. The other one was the importance of ISVs. Uh, so really, um, really went and spent a lot of time with ISV, set up ISV solution development centers. The third was partners, systems integrators, your you know, TCS, HCL, et cetera. And then the fourth one was to get known to be something. And we chose that time to be very close to the open source, open source message with Java and Linux. So it was very exciting. I think the IBM software revenue in Asia Pacific was maybe two or three single digit millions. And it is double-digit billions um, now, if not more. So it was a very, very exciting time. And, you know, you kind of realize how much software is about the ecosystem, right? Yeah, that's true. And you learned that lesson early on. Um, I'm going to pivot us to, uh, I think, two years uh, entree into cybersecurity. And I remember that moment because that's when you and I met. But maybe you can walk us through, because I believe you were in Singapore at the time and then moved to the U.S., I was in Singapore and I had indicated to Arvind, who is now the CEO, that at some point, you know, it would be good to move to the U.S. And I still remember when he called me and said, you know, we are acquiring this company and I think you should move here and I think you should be the integration executive. And sitting in Singapore at that time, I was responsible for quite a large business. I thought Cuban Lab sounded very small. So I said, so I have to move across the world and I don't know what is this company. And he said, just do it. It's it's very exciting. You will love it. And that was, I came and met Brendan. Brendan Hannigan, who uh, was the CEO of Cuban Labs, now the CEO of Sonrai, who's been on the show as well. Yeah. And uh, just uh, started. Uh, It was, and, you know, that was spent time. I think there was a few of us there with you who was one of the first people I spoke to and actually very, very good conversation. But I still feel you were the first one who simplified it. You know, otherwise everyone I was talking to was talking apps and, you know, this is what we need to do for identity. This is what we need to do. This is what we need for our sim. This is what we need. But I think that picture, what was it called? The immunity, you know? Yeah, the security framework, IBM security framework, and then eventually the immune system, I think. Immune system, so good. So I think you explained <laughs> that. There was Michael Loria, Steve. Yeah, so I, I, that was my transition. The job, I was given very little time to accept it. But once I accepted it, the next thing I was there. And as you know, integrations are only 12 to 18 months. So there was not a day to do. Yeah. And so... What did you think after getting through the terminology and the acronyms, like you said, uh, what did you think of cybersecurity as a, you know, coming mid-career, as they say, into cybersecurity versus early career? What, because you know, I, I frankly don't know anything, but um, what, are we all crazy in cybersecurity? What's the deal? Coming from the outside, I believe was good uh, because I have some convictions today that come from that outside in approach. I think that cybersecurity is here to stay, right? We are all going to 
ultimately live in a digital world. There will be 8, 10 billion people who spend much of their life on digital platforms. So it is going to be a way of life. And we have to figure out a way to be secure by focusing on things that are most important. So first thing I do believe is that the fragmentation and the stridency of the fragmentation is not does not serve the industry well. We talk often about pieces, but you could be fabulously secure on every piece and not be secure in how they're put together, how they're organized, how they're managed, how governance is done, and so many aspects. So I, I do very strongly believe in that, um, in that business language, in the ability to make the components part of a whole strategy versus making the components the strategy. I think that was helpful coming from, I do, you know, the acronyms of, I went to the Navy, there were a lot of acronyms go anywhere. Yeah, and sure. That's, especially if you're going to a big company, acronyms will be there. But the inability to step up, or I would say the challenges in, in being able to step up beyond the, this is really important to, okay, from a client perspective, what, what are the challenges they have? And is it, is it one size fits all? Perfect. I feel like we could spend a lot of time on IBM, but I, if, if you're okay, because there's so much there, I, I want to move back to Astari because you, you, you got a ton done at IBM. And I think, like I said, there's a book and a movie, at least uh, one of each for, for your life at some point, with or without Matt Damon. But I want to get to you, you uh, spent two decades at IBM and then you got into Tomasek and Astari. And I'd love to just get a sense of that transition and then get into Astari and uh, rehash that and then get into a couple topics I want to ask you about. So you transitioned from IBM into, into this world. How did you end up in this, in this world? So um, I had no intention to leave. Um, I'd been with IBM for 23 years or uh, 23 years. I was at, in New York. Uh, there was no definitive plan to leave. I think when Tomasek, I, when I spoke to Tomasek, it was, I loved what they were trying to do. It was not going to be easy, but I just think it's visionary. And the problem they were trying to solve was this, that cybersecurity is very important. It's important to them as investors. And actually, it poses one of the biggest risks to their capital. Second is that cybersecurity is often delegated to a technology discussion. And that is because it's a very fragmented market. So the question was, is there something we could do that really simplifies the way a client can become more secure without jumping too quickly into the, the pieces so this idea of could you think of a model where we had very experienced cybersecurity leaders working with clients and helping them get more secure, but they weren't actually pitching a product or a service. They were actually pitching what the client really needed. So that was the problem they were trying to solve. Um, I loved it. And the idea was that to solve this client's problem, you will have investment fund, uh, $2 billion was kept aside. Maybe just to take a step back on Tomasek, because many people know it, some people don't. Just give us a sentence on what, it, what is Tomasek exactly? Yeah, Tomasek is uh, Singapore's largest sovereign fund, um, big, big investor, very strategic, 
yeah, very successful. Okay, got it. Great. Yeah, so I thought what they were trying to do was brilliant. I mean, I really felt that is what the cyber industry had been waiting for. The market was very vendor-driven, you know, lots of vendors, lots of anxiety, lots of, if you don't do this, this will happen. To really flip it over to a client model, that's a lot less trident because this is not going away. This is not like, for the next three years, you have to wait. This is going to be there for a long time. So to tone it down and to really start saying, okay, year on year, how do I get better? You know, how do I get better? What are the new threats? How do I get better? And actually, that's why we, you're a marketing, a marketing genius, actually. But that's why we chose the name Istari because Istari is not about getting attacked, getting hacked, getting killed, all of that. It is a navigator. It's the people who will help you get better, get safer. So Istari comes from Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings, yeah. I mean, you started this. Uh, you, you, I th- you know, this is quite entrepreneurial. You have a big backer with Tomasek, but I remember at the time you, you moved to London and you literally hung up a shingle and started writing your business plan and, 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 and formulating ideas and getting feedback. And, and that was a process you went through. Yeah, really. I mean, and not to, it is not exaggerated. There was an idea and there was a really good investor. I like, the way Tomasek approached it. And uh, we sat down in Singapore. I, I moved to Singapore for a few months. Oh, I forgot that phase, yeah. Started drawing it out. What what should it look like? What kind of people do we need? What kind of, is it, should we focus on the portfolio side and investment returns or should we focus on the go-to-market side and first build the supercharged layer? So that's what we started doing. They moved to London. I was in Singapore only for six months. And remember, all this is happening when COVID strikes. So I moved to London, actually, in the middle of COVID. Hired the team. Um, but uh, the CEO of Tomasek had given me very good advice. When, when we were first talking, I was thinking, you know, how? How do I set this up? What is a platform? How do I do this? And he said the biggest scarcity in cybersecurity today's talent. Find the right talent and the rest will, will develop. So, and that I feel very good about. I think we have really got talented people uh, who have, who share the culture of just obsession with client success. Amazing. Yeah. Can you give a sense of scale? How many uh, portfolio companies, how many uh, folks on the team? I don't know if you can give a sense of scale. So we have, as I said, the, the the investment capital itself is $2 billion. We've invested about $1.3. Our investment approach is also very different. It's much more longer term. It's strategic. And it's very much aligned to client needs. Today in the portfolio, we have nine companies and four VCs. So the VCs are very strong partners because they also provide a lot of input. In- you mean you are also an LP in other VCs in, in in, through VCs, that? Yeah. yeah. Got it. Okay. A limited partner. And then we have a team. Actually, you will remember the word Jedi. Um, we have a team of cybersecurity experts. Um, we've got about 30 client-facing experts. And, you know, one of the things culturally I really wanted to build was a spirit of the freedom of being an entrepreneur. You know, so when we were starting to build the team, if my early interviews, if somebody said they are 
fabulous at building teams and motivating teams, Istari was not the right place for them because the dream of Istari was that you should be super qualified, super experienced, but you should be super comfortable picking up your backpack and going to wherever we need to go. So it was never structured as extremely hierarchical. Amazing. Amazing. Um, and your, 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 your experience in the ecosystem that you mentioned in the early days of, of software, that, or your early days of software, you're doing that now because you have a huge ecosystem of partners. You mentioned those four VCs, and I, I'll let you mention any of the ones you want to mention. But I, I see in LinkedIn and the press, there's, a, there's not just the uh, impact of those uh, Jedis that you mentioned, but also the impact of that whole ecosystem. So you've, you've taken that into this business. Very much about the collective, you know. So we have a company called Signia, fabulous, very strong incident response, OT. I always think if you're in trouble, you want Signia by your side. They're very, very deep. Ensign, which is Asia's largest cybersecurity pure play. Yeah, and a a partner of DevOps, I will say. Oh, very good. (laughs) So you're part of our ecosystem. We recently invested in Axio, which is risk quantification. You would believe that the cyber discussion has to eventually become just a risk discussion, you know. So I won't go through all of them. There's a large number. There's Clarity, which is an OT company. Very big part of our business is also Blue Voyant, which is uh, headquartered in um, New York. Uh, But internal and external digital risk management, supply chain, defense, et cetera. So, yeah, we have a very good set of companies and we work very closely with them. Amazing. All right, we're going to shift the two topics you and I uh, uh, agreed would be fun to highlight. And the first one is um, on life and work. And uh, you know, how do we keep these two in check with each other? And you've mentioned uh, your better half, your husband is a, also has an amazing, uh, amazingly successful career. Uh, and you have two kids uh, who I've, I think, met at least one of your two children. Um, and, uh, one grandchild. and you do it all, right? And one grandchild. That's right. That's <laughs> incredible. Incredible. Uh, sorry. I don't know. I forgot that. So tell us how this works for you and, and how, you know, I'm, I'm trying to avoid using the word balance, but let's put it out there. How, how do you balance? Because I, you know, and it's not a, it's a question I deal with as a father husband um, and a CEO, and, and you deal it as a, as a mother and a wife and a CEO. So how, how does that work? How does it work for you? Yeah, and you know, you will have very good insights of your own there. You have four daughters. So I, firstly, you know, somebody once told me, oh, work-life balance means work first, and then balance will come when you're retired. Uh, I don't believe that. I think when you're building... <laughs> When you're building an organization or when you want to be successful, you want to tap into the best talent. And the best talent is distributed. And, you know, at least 50% of the best talent is women. So how do you make something work that accommodates each individual's journey? Um, I, I think the big difference between a career and a job, a career is for a long time. So I... I'm a big believer that you have to be balanced first as as an employee. You know, you have to have a good sense of what's most important at what time. If you want everything at the same time, you want to have kids, you want this tough promotion, you want to relocate all at the same time, it becomes a weak link. It becomes a point that you might say, this is too difficult, maybe I should just give it up. So 
you know, careers today are 40, 45 years. Take your time to balance it out and enjoy the different aspects. And I think then employers have to support that ability for employees to do that as long as they contribute, as long as the business delivers what it needs to deliver. But I think from both sides, uh, I do believe that it's not about having it all. It's about just the simple fact that there's a lot of talent that gets out of the workforce, either because they try to do too much too soon or because the employment environment doesn't provide you with enough options. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree, I agree. And getting into some tactical, I mean, you mentioned one, which was tactically you were able to work a five-hour week and build back up as you as you moved into Hong Kong, for example. I know for me, uh, you mentioned I have, I, I remember when I when we were having our daughters, three, by the way, at one point, my wife just said, you know, I, I understand you're busy and she was working as well. You know, can you just block six to eight on your calendar every day? Because, you know, when you have babies, as you, you know, especially with your grandchild, right? Six to eight is the crazy time, right? They need to eat and then they sleep. And then she's like, after eight, you can go back to work. I don't care. But, you know, so I used to block that. Then I, and I used to block it in my IBM calendar and said, unless, you know, basically Jenny Rometty or, you know, somebody really important needs me, I, I'm going to try and take these two, two hours to just focus on the family. Did you do, did you have some techniques like that that kept you in a little bit of a balance? Exactly the same. So I think calendaring is everything. Calendaring, you know, we, both my husband and I would sit down at least once a week. And we had this running calendar for 12, 18 months. When are the kids, uh, parent-teachers meetings, just when is my travel, when is his travel, all of that. Calendaring is a very, because it avoids surprises, right? So I think calendar is huge. I also think that you need to be healthy. You have to look after yourself. So exercise is normally the one that goes out of the window when you're trying to do a lot. So that is not a great idea because it it builds stress. Um, and, you know, now, of course, there's a lot of discussion about this remote working, hybrid working, etc. But human interaction at work is uh, motivating and it's empowering. So to some level... Those are healthy habits for a long career. Okay. And then the other one I want to ask you about is how did you and your husband make decisions? I mean, he moved to Hong Kong or you moved to Hong Kong for his work, but I think you moved from Singapore to the U.S. for your work. Yeah. So India to Hong Kong was his, then Hong Kong to Singapore was mine. And then New York was sort of both. And then London was, of course, very much me. Um, how do you make the, firstly, I think we both assume that both of us will work all the time. So that option of one person giving up doesn't come up that often, has actually never come up because I feel, um, we are both qualified. Uh, we both like working and it's part of our identity. So that's one. I think the second thing is you kind of operate as a home unit, right? As a unit, there are times when the kids are younger, perhaps a family unit dynamic and it's different for each family but in the end there's an income that comes in and it's used to provide better opportunities for yourself for your family for your children look after your parents all the things that you know we want to do so if you look at it as a whole 
it seems easier then. It seems easier to make decisions. Awesome. I'm going to keep us moving, and I'm sure people can reach out to you on LinkedIn and ask more about work-life balances. So much mentoring to be done in this area because I think some people are, if you lose sight of it, then to your, I mean, your your friend who gave you the advice, right? Uh, first you work, and then you, and then you uh, live life, and that's the balance. I, I I wonder if they they were able to stay married with that philosophy, right? So that's you have to stay happy and married and whatever gets you going. Um, second topic. Um, you know, you are both a CEO now and you're on several boards and you've done quite a bit of research. Um, Starry recently put out a report on uh, CEO report on resilience, cyber resiliency. So I wanted to maybe a little quicker than I intended, but just get your sense on you know, the role the CEO plays in managing risk and in cybersecurity and, and your perspective as a board member, as a, as a CEO and, and some of the insights from the report. And then we'll, we'll draw to a close. Yeah, I think uh, we put up this report because you know, we always get hearing CEOs must be responsible for cybersecurity. And you're seeing the, you know, the governance laws that are coming into place, right, about board members requiring cybersecurity experience. There was a lot of information uh, about from companies about what CEOs should do. But we thought, let's ask CEOs, what do they feel about cybersecurity? I think the three things that came out is, number one, they all feel cybersecurity is one of the top three risks. So it's very important. The second thing is they feel they're really trying to solve the problem, hire a good person, hire a great CISO, put in more money. But the third thing is they don't know if they feel more secure. You know, so so it's quite, it's telling which is kind of the worst combination of, of three things, right? It's like... It's really important. I'm throwing money into it, but I don't know if I'm feeling more secure. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't want my house to burn down and it may be on fire. <laughs> but then we sort of um, worked through that. And I guess the simple the headline is that because of the way the cyber market's grown, as I said, very fragmented, very strident, very anxiety-driven, to turn it around, you know, um, what has happened as a reaction of that is that this is a tech problem and we we look at a NIST chart, red, orange, green, and we're either safe or not safe. But I think just being able to convert that firstly into business language, you know, as this company, this is what's most valuable to us, etc. You know, how do you, what is it that you plan to mitigate? What is it that you plan to leave? What is it you plan to ensure? All those things. And to pull the CEO in the journey, and of course, from our research, our recommendation was certain things for the CEO as well. They have blind trust moving to informed trust from, you know, sort of, they all say they feel accountable, but how do you build co-responsibility? It's like the general saying, I know that when I'm, I have to, when there's a problem, I will lead the charge, but you have to know your troops and you have to know your strategy and your formation. So I think those were some of the things that clear, I mean, CEOs have managed to uh, master very complicated things, financial risk, legal risk, geopolitical risk, which is crazy. So how do you really learn to get a lot more comfortable talking about cybersecurity risk? I love it. And I, when we uh, when we post this uh, podcast, I'll post a link to the report. It's a really interesting read, an easy read. Rashmi, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close this, uh, us out on that. I think it's a good place to, to close things out on. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your story and uh, your insights with me on, on the podcast today. Thank you for inviting me and great to see you again. 
likewise. And uh, thank you to our audience for listening today. Be sure to join us for the next episode of Cyber CEOs Decoded. Rashmi, appreciate it.